Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the podcast. And in this episode, I'm welcoming back my guest and friend, Megan Hall. Uh, She and her uh, ministry partner, Deidre, were on the podcast about a year ago. So go back and check out episode 100, especially because we're going to be talking about the Enneagram today. And if you go back and you check out that episode, we get into a lot more we go more in depth into the Enneagram and self-awareness and some of those aspects. Today, we're going to talk about deconstruction. So this is one of my deconstruction episodes. Uh, and so Megan's going to share her journey. Uh, and then we talk about the, the second half of it. We talk a little bit more about the Enneagram and deconstruction. We do a little vignette, I guess, of each number and how they might process uh, deconstruction, things that might help them or hinder them uh, just based on their personality style. And so I think you'll find that helpful. I'm also going to include in the show notes a couple of books. Uh, Beth McCord has a really good introduction to the Enneagram. Also, uh, Suzanne Stabile and Ian Crone have one called The Road Back to You. Uh, and so I would highly recommend both of those books if you're not really familiar with the Enneagram and you want to get a little bit more information on that. I do want to give kind of a heads up on this episode um, because we get into politics in this episode, uh, mostly because it's part of Megan's story. And I know for some people, politics is triggering, right? And so I wanted to kind of give that as a heads up. Plus, I, I don't know that I've really had any episodes where I've gotten into politics. This episode, I think, is great and Uh, how she talks about how that played such a huge role in her deconstruction journey. Uh, I believe that there are a lot of you who are listening where like that's part of her story is really going to resonate with you. And uh, like, you're going to say, Oh yeah, that that's where I'm at or that's where I was at, or this is kind of how my journey started, or I've been sitting on this and trying to figure out what to do with it. And so anyway, I think it, it will help you. I share a little bit about my journey and how politics did play a little bit of a role in it for me. Um, for me, I would say more of it really played into the trust aspect. Um, and so for those people, for people who aren't part of my denomination, you may, you probably don't know this. And even if you are in my denomination, you may not know this, but uh, during 2020, there was a Facebook group that had been created and there were people in our denomination who were making lists of clergy who chose to vote or publicly support the Democratic Party, um, if they were, especially if they were public about it. And they were taking screenshots and they were sharing those in this Facebook group and basically um, trying to start a movement where you could lose your credentials in our denomination if you were a Democrat or if you voted Democrat. And there were people in this group that I knew that I had, that I trusted at the time, did trust, no longer trust. And and these included not just your everyday clergy, but also superintendents, district superintendents. Uh, My understanding is there was at least one general superintendent in there as well. Um, Other denominational leaders um, in this group. And so that played a role in some of the trust being broken down for me in my journey. I may talk more about that in one of the other episodes. 
I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, I guess I wanted to throw that out there because I, she, because Megan makes a really good point when she talks about this intent, this untangling for a lot of us who are in the, in some kind of an evangelical denomination, politics are really wrapped up in our faith and our identity. And so part of the deconstruction process is figuring out how to detangle those things so that you can really look at your theology and what you believe about God and about Christ and the church apart from the political realm. And I think that's part of what makes the deconstruction aspect difficult because for a lot of people we find that, okay, we're going to have to almost burn it down to the ground and then build it back up. So if that's, if that, is where you're at and you're struggling with, I think that this will really resonate with you. But also I suspect that there are probably some of you who are listening who you've never been able to articulate that part of the journey and that and the frustration that you're experiencing. And so this episode might just help you to better articulate that aspect of the deconstruction journey or at least identify it as something that you need to begin working on. Anyway, I think you will enjoy this. We have a couple of, or I have a couple of solo episodes coming after this. Uh, I will see you again, or talk to you again soon. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Well, hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to be back and talking with you. It's good to see your face. You know, I think it's been just a year since you guys were on the podcast last time. So, but now it's this time, it's just you. That's true. I came alone. And let's see, since the last time, you're still you're still doing your uh, Enneagram ministry. and But you got a new job, right? I get a job, like, I, it feels like every like six months. So <laughs> I still work in the education industry. I still work in professional professional development and I'm always in transition. I'm I'm pretty sure that's just the mainstay of my professional life is that I'm just, everything's always changing. Uh, I hear that. So I'm doing a series right now on deconstruction. And so I've told parts of my story and I've had a couple of guests on. Uh, Zach Hunt's been on to talk about what it really means to for the Bible to be inspired. Um, and then uh, Mark Harris has come on to do some healing um, of religious trauma and stuff. And so I wanted to hear your story as you've been going through this deconstruction journey, um, like kind of like how it started. Um, and like, I guess whatever you want to share about it. And then maybe we can talk about the Enneagram and how that all fits in there. And like my, I'm an Enneagram six. So my journey looks a little different than you who's an Enneagram four and stuff like that. So um, when did this, like, like, what was like the start, like here, I think I'm deconstructing or, Hey, uh, things aren't working right. Like, like, where did it kind of start for you? It's interesting because I was raised, I'll just start at the beginning. I was raised in a Christian home and in a a fairly conservative denomination and church, you know, similar to, to what, how you were, I know. And it, but my family wasn't super, uh, I would say 
they were Christians and they were politically conservative, but I would say they weren't super socially conservative. So we had alcohol in the house. We played cards, we danced, that kind of thing, you know? So I didn't grow up like in a, in very, like a fundamental kind of place. And sometime in my young adult life, I got myself in circles where I was kind of the more socially conservative uh, black sheep of the family, where I was the one saying, guys, maybe we shouldn't drink at every event, or maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe we should see what the Holy Spirit wants to do through us. And not that any of that is wrong, but that's kind of the direction I swayed. Maybe that's my Enneagram fourness, trying to stay yeah. unique from my family a little bit. But somewhere in 2013, 2014, uh, some things started happening with uh, shootings, especially the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, uh, which I live right outside of St. Louis. And so that was something that I was kind of watching people that I knew lived in those neighborhoods. And I was thinking, well, I've always just assumed policemen are always good. And if you don't do anything wrong, you won't get shot. So clearly he must've been doing something wrong. And so that is the first time I started really questioning it. My best friend's son is adopted and he's black. Her sister has two brown children who were adopted. And I just started looking at these little brown and black babies around me thinking, what about when they grow up? What if they're not doing something wrong? And I still wasn't totally sure, like, if there was a black and white, not, you know, no pun intended answer for that. But it got me thinking, maybe everything isn't as right or wrong, black and white, as I've just always assumed it was. So that is sort of what started me thinking, okay, politically, this is where some people seem to line up on this issue. And this is where, and you can't cross over. If you believe this, you believe everything that comes along with this. And if you believe this, you believe everything that comes along with this. And those were the first times I really started seeing that in my adult life. Like if you are Republican, which I was raised to be, then you believe abortion is always wrong, no matter what. And you believe that police are always good, no matter, there's just this litmus test, right? Of what it means to be a Republican. And in my circles, if you were a Christian, you were automatically a Republican. So that's the environment I was swimming in. And 2016, I saw Donald Trump running for president and I had been entertained by him on The Apprentice and thought, what a joke, a reality star is running for president. I can't believe anyone's giving him even a little bit of stage time. This is ridiculous. And all the people around me, Christians, Republicans were saying, oh, I hope he doesn't get the nominee. I hope he doesn't make it. We don't want to vote for him, but he did. Somehow he ended up at the end of it and then won the presidency. And all of a sudden, all of the Christians around me were saying, well, he's the lesser of two evils. Well, I guess we'll hold our nose and vote for him. And within, I don't know, a year, those same people who were holding their noses were praising him on my social media feeds about what a wonderful president he was. Yeah. And that's when I started going, Ooh, I don't think I can identify as fully with this Republican party as I thought I could. And that's really my, so my deconstruction um, in spirituality started politically. Wow. Yeah. 2016 seems so long ago. I mean, I mean, I know it's not right, mm-hmm. but the last three years have been so long. So that's <laughs> true. Seems, seems like it was 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, I remember when uh he got the when he got the nominee and you know was going to run and i started hearing uh all of these christians saying calling him a christian like they're said like they went 
oh, well, he went to the altar and he prayed a prayer. I'm like, that does not make him a Christian. And like, I just lost my mind and thought, what in the world? We, you know, we have to, we have to start reevaluating some things. Um, yeah. So I think that there was, there's like a collective of people who are like, okay, if the political doesn't line up now, what are we going to do with all the other stuff? Exactly. So I, I don't even, I don't love the word deconstruction. I think it's an applicable word. I just don't love it because I think it's getting a weird connotation. Mm -hmm. But what I started doing, it wasn't like, let me start with Jesus and work my way backwards. I was going, can I unbundle some of my political and social beliefs from who, what I believe about Jesus? And would he still stay intact if I do this? Yeah. So it really was more of an unbundling process to say, wait, I still, I'm pretty sure I want to stay with Jesus. I'm pretty sure he's going to be standing here if everything else burns down. I had not questioned who he was or his character or what I had seen him do in my life, but everything else really felt like, what happens if I throw out the fire? Is any of it going to stay standing? Is any of it going to stay intact? And so I was really trying to just unbundle as much of cultural and societal expectations of what being a Christian meant from the person that I knew Jesus was. I cannot even tell you the four years that Donald Trump was president, I saw Christians, my parents, their friends, the people, my old teachers, people I had respected my whole life say, oh, what a great president. What, what a good man he is. Oh, look at his beautiful wife. And I'm saying these are the exact same people that when Bill Clinton was president, were saying how terrible it was because he was such an ungodly example of a man in the White House for little kids. And I thought, you you can't have it both ways. You told me how terrible Obama was, and he's the most family man president we've had in like two decades. You he, you know, he he was above reproach in a lot of social issues and a lot of like the way he carried himself. And yet all I heard was how terrible he was and what an awful president. And none of this makes sense to me anymore. Nothing about this feels Christian to me. And I'm not saying the president necessarily should be a Christian, but the Christians who are endorsing these people for their character, it started to not line up. Yeah. After you started kind of pulling on those threads, um, did you notice it started to then move over into, because I wouldn't call those, well, I mean, some people would call those theological threads. They're, I don't think they're theological threads. Um, what did it did it cross over then into theological issues and like like how did you deal with that? I think a little bit, you know, because of pulling at those political threads, I started listening to different podcasts. Uh, the Holy Post podcast has been a real game changer for me in the last few years. It's uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's Phil Vischer, who's the creator of Veggie Tales and uh, a former pastor and a couple of authors, and they discuss current issues, but from this lens of what's happening with Christians and is Christian nationalism really the dangerous road we think we want to head down? And, and they call out those dangers. So that's been really helpful to me. And doing that then got me into seeing a whole lot of more people and authors and opened me up to different theological perspectives because mm -hmm. of those political uh, unbundling. So, um, you know, I think I, I have a head start a little bit on on uh, some theological beliefs that people might find controversial, because as you know, growing up in a Wesleyan denomination, a Wesleyan background, women have been ordained in this church for, you probably know better than I do, but like 200 years. I, I don't even know. It's yeah. It's been a long time. Women have been given <laughs> positions of power. And 
it was during that time that during Trump's election years that I um, was watching a really good friend. She was the senior pastor of my home church and was met with a lot of resistance actually from the community at first. And I thought, no, what that we've always ordained women. Of course, women are senior pa Of course, this shouldn't even be a question. And it was really disheartening to watch some of the reaction toward that. And so that started me into, okay, what? Well, so what has historically been the role of women in the church? Because we can't be the only denomination or the only sect of denomination that have done this. And so Beth Allison Barr wrote, um, oh, uh, some the case, biblical womanhood. I can't remember the title. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. something like that and um started reading about just patriarchy in general and then I was all fired up like oh my gosh the reason everything is wrong in this country is patriarchy but mm -hmm. then you read more and you're like no it's patriarchy and white supremacy and then you read a little bit more and you're like and capitalism and none of those things can really be separated out without tearing out some of your theological beliefs because they're so intertwined Christianity is a system that was in, in America, now I, I don't speak for the rest of the world and I'm sure they're doing it better in a lot of other places, but American Christianity is deeply rooted in white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. It, mm -hmm. it, it just is, they're all intertwined. That doesn't mean every person who's a Christian in America subscribes to those beliefs, of course, right. but the, the deepest systems are tied together in that in this country. And when you start pulling at one thread, man, they all just fall apart. <laughs> They, they, they are like enmeshed and, you know, cause I, I didn't grow up in the church, but then I, like I had a Catholic background and then I, of course I came into a Wesleyan holiness denomination where, you know, people, they've been late 1800s and I'm like, so, so there was a lot of stuff where I would hear other people talk and I'd be like, oh, that's just because you're Calvinist and you just don't understand blah, blah, blah. But it is interesting that you made that comment about your friend because I mean, I had experienced some negativity and stuff like that as a woman in ministry, but once, like once Trump became president and then especially when 2020 hit, it was like all of a sudden my experience like multiplied. It was so unsettling because I'm like, I thought I worked through all this. I thought my ministry and my, you know, like what I had already done had given me credibility already and like now all of a sudden like I've been a minister for you know a while and now all of a sudden like people are questioning things and I'm like wait a minute this doesn't make any sense but yeah I think that there is a certain amount where just the landscape shifted and mm -hmm. I feel like some of us who like kind of like you said we kind of had a head start like I don't know if it, it all caught up or what yeah there was something about making America great again and reverting it back 50, 60 years, people didn't, some people didn't think through the ramifications of that because 50 and 60 years ago, maybe there wouldn't have been some of the social agendas that they, and I put that in air quotes because, you know, some people think that today's social agendas are the worst that our culture's ever seen ever. And clearly they don't remember the days of, you know, in Bible times where people were literally throwing their babies in fires, but I digress. But, but 50, 60 years ago, women didn't have credit cards on their own. They could not leave abusive relationships. Um, people of color were still fighting for equal rights. They, you know, there was separatism everywhere, segregation. America was not great. It was great if you were white middle-class or above and, and a man. It was, it was the patriarchal 
white supremacy capitalist structure. And that's what made America great, you know? And so I really feel like that was a permeated um, belief system over the last few years where people were like, oh, we need to go back to that. But like, but do you remember that? I mean, I wasn't even alive and I don't want to go back to that, you know? Well, I, I was just a little girl. I remember when my mom got her first credit card. Oh, I, can't even ima- I can't even imagine those days, you know, especially with us as far as we still have to go, I think. So you started pulling on the threads. Mm-hmm. Um, where were you going to church at the time? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I was kind of going back and forth between two churches at the time. One where um, I just felt like I had a lot of home base there. Uh, I had moved, re- uh, my family, we moved away from my home church where I grew up. So it wasn't, there were no Wesleyan Holiness churches around my area. So I, I was just kind of going to a couple non-denominational ones. Um, one that was a little bit more conservative, but I had a lot of people there. And one that was a little bit more liberal. I wouldn't say crazy or anything, um, but I just didn't know very many people. There wasn't like a community. So I kind of bounced back and forth between those two churches for a few years. And yeah. um, even still today, I would say I'm still kind of bouncing. Although if I'm going to be really honest with you, we don't bounce into those doors of either place very often. And it's not because there are bad people there. There there aren't. I actually really adore the leadership of both places and the people that attend. But I have found more church and more community in the places where I've built it and in the places where like when we do our women's retreats or when we are working with trafficking survivors or when Deidre and I, she was on this podcast with me last time, when we're getting together with our girlfriends and we're just talking about what the Lord is doing in our lives, that's church to me. You know, I have the community and I have places where I'm serving and I don't feel the need to be inside the doors every Sunday. Yeah. So I heard someone say this not too long ago and they said that the church has not done a real good job of creating community. And so because of that, and and with us also being hyper individualistic society now, it's op- it's left a uh, open door for conspiracy theories, and so like mm. that vacancy of not having true community, conspiracy theories have been able to like come in and fill the void, and people almost build community around the conspiracy theories uh, instead of like mm-hmm. our our actual you know faith or you know like some of the community groups you guys are doing with like your women's retreats and stuff, yeah. I'm sure the pandemic and just even having people isolated for so long exacerbated all of that because not only was this global thing happening that none of us had had to confront in our lifetime, and it was a very, very long time of really scary unknowns, but we were literally isolated away from people and our community was all found online for a long time. And, you know, we're going to see the ramifications from that for years to come, I think, even in our children. So I don't, I don't know what could have been done differently necessarily in all of that, but I do think that it's going to have some fall, far reaching consequences because of that time. And the church was struggling during that time. And I don't blame them, man. I mean, you were a pastor. I would not have, you could not have paid me to try to pastor a church during the pandemic. How do you, how do you go and make a virtual space real? How do you make everyone happy when everything became a political belief all of a sudden, whether you mask or don't mask or hold service or don't hold service. Now you are aligning yourself with a political party, whatever choice you made. It was impossible during that time for pastors. And I imagine a lot of people have walked away since then because of how like tiring and exhausting that time was. 
Yeah. A lot of it depended on too, on where, what state you were in and what mm-hmm. denomination you were in. Like, so like our, our denomination kind of took hands off. Um, of course, then when Trump made the, made it so that churches don't have to follow the rules, that made it even harder for a decision. Um, yeah. And then Chris, I'm in Michigan and, and our governor um, was one of the more stringent on keeping distances and stuff like that. And, and so, yeah, like every decision I made regarding that was definitely questioned and challenged. Exactly. Um, so when did it kind of like pick up speed? Was it during the pandemic that it really picked up speed for you? Was there like a tipping point? I mean, other than like, I know you talked about the mm-hmm. 2016 election kind of was like the starting point, um, but was there like a tipping point for you? Mm-hmm. It was ironic because I think it was um, during 2020 when I actually thought, oh, maybe I'll go be a Republican again because I really don't want to wear a mask. And maybe this COVID thing's not such a big deal. That was for like, I thought that for like a month. And it's because of my own fear of not knowing what was going to happen and how long my kids were going to be home from school and the shutdown. And it was just a terrifying time. And then I started seeing how whatever you believed about masks and vaccines and everything aligned you with a political party. I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm staying out of that then. So I was actually like, this is the most conservative I've felt in four years, you know, when the pandemic first started. But then I started seeing like, oh, maybe this is a real thing. Maybe this is worse than we thought. Maybe this isn't just a cosmic joke. Um, And so I think it was probably the January 6th insurrection. I was lying in bed with COVID, sicker than I've ever been in my entire life, praying that there would be a vaccine soon. And on Facebook, when I would get the energy to lift up my phone, see, oh my gosh, people are storming the Capitol. And it's like at the behest of the former president, what the heck is going on and why are we okay with this? And I think that was probably the ultimate, like, I am done. I'm going to go figure out how to align with a different, not even like just unregister myself as a Republican with the state of Illinois. And I just couldn't, I could not believe the amount of people cheering him on. I could not believe the amount of people saying, insurrection is the wrong word um I knew people who were in DC that day not the ones storming the Capitol, but they were holding prayer events around the lawn probably because they thought that it was being stolen from them and I thought okay if people are going to go so far as to believe this election was stolen with as many guards as we have and legal systems proving that that's not true I don't know how I mean that's it that's again I know that comes down to Uh, political stuff and I know that that's not really the theology but how do you untangle it when the pictures from that day have a cross with an American flag behind it while people are running over the gates into the Capitol I I could not figure out for the life of me why this was okay nothing about the last four years had been what I would say of Jesus not one Christian who supported him was coming at issues, coming at people even on Facebook to try to argue from a lens of love and compassion and unending grace and just everything that I see Jesus modeling. I didn't see that in, in, in Christians who followed Trump at all. Yeah. Like, I don't know if this is for you, but for me, it started to uh, like unravel my trust, which then was like, okay, not what other things should I not trust them about? Exactly. Like if the whole reason that the Republican Party is the Christian Party, it's be- I found out it's because 
the moral majority back in whenever, you know, you know, reading like Kristen Kobes Dumay and all these books, Jesus and John Wayne, it all tied back to the issue of abortion. And if abortion is the single issue that deems this the Christian party, and then I find out that it actually abortion rates go down when a Democratic president is in office and they go up when a Republican president is, is in office, then maybe the solution isn't actually who's leading the country. Maybe the solution is, oh, maybe we can serve unwed mothers. Maybe we can care about children in foster and adoption. Maybe we can, maybe there's more that we can do to actually boots on the ground, help those marginalized communities and not just elect a leader who has a belief system that we want to hear. And so I I just, it, it astounds me that abortion remains a single issue vote for people to this day, because it's just And and then what kills me even more is that Trump got to elect Supreme Court justices who were pro-life because it really made everybody go, see, we did the right thing. We did the right thing. And now Roe v. Wade's been revoked. And it just, it's not going to help abortion. It's just going to make marginalized women and children more vulnerable, more at risk and in more danger. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't replace it with other things. It's not like, exactly. yeah, I, I, I knew that about the statistics that when you have a Democrat, if you have a pro-choice person in the White House, <laughs> that they offer people choices like vouchers for daycare and um, prenatal care and um, WIC programs, <laughs> you know, and uh, for and continuing ed programs and uh, like mm-hmm. one thing after another after another, um, and then we get a pro-life person in the White House and they literally take all the stuff away. Mm-hmm. like anything and then ban abortion anything that would help you to choose life they eliminate yeah. i'm like wait a minute how is that probably i yeah. don't get it and i don't understand why education is supposed to be free for everyone in the country and that's okay but healthcare shouldn't be free because that's socialist things just start didn't start making sense when i really thought to look at them yeah. but if we had universal health care i promise there would be more women that could have babies because the abortion's a lot cheaper than not having insurance through childbirth, you know, wh- whatever that is. I'm just saying there are, like you said, there are so many things that could help alleviate the problems, but it's considered then socialism. It's considered, no, that's the church's job to go in and serve the poor. Well, the Bible also says, if we want to take the Bible super literally in the old Testament, which we really seem to want to do, even though that's old covenant law, it also says that we're supposed to give away all of our money and every seven years forgive debts. And, and there's a whole lot of stuff we're not following in an economic system in the Old Testament, but we sure want to follow some of the social systems. Right. Yeah. I can, I can use a jubilee. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Get my college loans gone. That's the other thing. That was the other big thing that happened when President Biden said that he was going to eliminate $10,000 worth of college loans. And everybody was like, I'm not paying for someone else's education. I'm like, these are Christians that I've looked up to and respected my whole life going, you chose it. And I'm like, you didn't give us a choice. You didn't give us a choice. You said you have to, to earn a living. You go to college. Now I am a, I'm an educator. I'm a believer in higher ed. You know, I, I worked at a university. I believe in it, but also we need to go after the loan companies because this is a terrible idea. $10,000 is not going to make a dent in my undergraduate loan. And I owe more today after paying tens of thousands of dollars off than the day I graduated college. Is that my fault? <laughs> right. I've yeah. paid my dues and I owe more than I did 20 years ago. <laughs> oh yeah. 
I'll take $10,000, please. Yep. Right. I know. Thanks for your compassion, Christian boomers. <laughs> it's not all boomers. Sorry. That was a <laughs> generic thing, but it seems to be the ones that are the most vocal on my newsfeed. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and they want us, they want pastor to have all the education and uh, exactly. And how are we going to pay? We can't even pay our bill. You want us to, you want us to pay our yeah, I worked in a ministry job for 15 years, you know, ministry in schools and got paid pennies because it's a mission. It's a service. You do this for God. And I've seen friends work in churches and be on church staffs and well, you do this for God or the men get the title of pastor and the women do the, the exact same job with no title and less money. And yeah, it's hard, man. It's hard when you start really looking at everything. Yeah. When you start looking at it, you see the patriarchy you know, even in my system, like in the last couple of years, I have a lot of leaders who will boast about being egalitarian, but when push comes to shove, I'm like, ah, oh, your complementarianism is showing and your patriarchy is showing. Yeah. You know, it hurts men too. I I don't know if you watched the Barbie movie, but I've seen it three times already. Now I own I it digitally. And, you know, it does, it touts the dangers of patriarchy and of matriarchy. It's literally going, this hurts women and men whenever there's an oppressive system in place. It's not about who's in charge. It's about, is it oppressive? It's wrong if it's oppressive. And so I, patriarchy hurts men just as much. It really, really does. Mm-hmm. Like in a nutshell, like the Enneagram four, and, and you know, all the words like um, core fear and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And how have you seen that play a role in your deconstruction? Mm-hmm. I do think in some ways being a four, um, as an individualist, I am comfortable with gray areas. Um, so that that is something I think that helps me to be able to look at something and not be so concerned that there's not a very right or a very wrong answer. You know, Deidre, um, my ministry partner, she's an Enneagram one, and she's been along a very parallel journey of me as me, and it's been killing her because she needs a right answer and a wrong answer because otherwise, how does she know if she's doing it right? Yeah, that that doesn't bother me as much. But as a four, my core fear is being misunderstood. Mm-hmm. I I don't want to be misunderstood, and I've had people say to me like, "Well, the Bible is clear," or if you took the Bible seriously, you would believe this. And I thought, how do you misunderstand me that much to think that I don't take the Bible seriously? I have been following Jesus since I was four years old. I have a freaking ministry for crying out loud. I hold the Bible to such high standards that I'm not just trying to like take things out of context. I'm really trying to dig in and learn from experts who have gone into the historical and contextual and cultural um, things to look, what are the translations who had an agenda when they translated this into English. And I have come to different conclusions on a lot of beliefs that I held growing up, but it's because of how highly I took the Bible. So it actually hurts me to think that they think I don't take the Bible seriously because I'm just following my current culture. Like as a four, I just want them to understand that that is not my journey here. In fact, it's scary to believe completely differently than the safety and security of how you were raised. You know, it's a scary thing, but sometimes you, when you know it, you can't unsee it. Oh yeah. I'm an Enneagram six. So I'm the, you know, we're the loyalist and, uh, well, our greatest fear is fear, (laughs) but, uh, but you know, more than that, it's being safe. Right. Yeah. And 
And so there was, for me, the big tipping point for me was when people I had trusted and thought were safe, no longer were safe and I could no longer trust them. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I kind of go into that phobic, counterphobic, you know, like, Mm -hmm. oh, okay. I didn't have to be like, it gave me freedom to not have to be a loyalist anymore because, well, the one person I know I can trust is me. Mm, (laughs) Um, That's good because that's a huge growth thing for a six to be able to look and trust yourself. You know, sixes don't have an easy time with that and they can get attached to belief systems really easily and be the conspiracist because that unites them to a community of other skeptics and stuff too. So I think the fact that you are a six and have come on this journey speaks volumes to your own journey and your own growth. Wow. Well, thanks. Can we just talk maybe for a few minutes about the other numbers and I don't know, just something that will would help them on the deconstruction journey? Um, yeah, just to start at the beginning, you know, the ones they're, they're kind of the perfectionists, but they're also the reformers. So I think changing their belief system or, or unbundling their belief system is a scary journey. Like I said, for them, because if they find out that they've been wrong their whole lives, what does that do to who they are as a person? You know, their whole thing is, I want to be right. I want to be good, but they also want to make things better. So, and like, in I'll just speak for, you know, Deidre's case she's like oh I see things differently now I feel a responsibility to go make sure things change and things get better and so there is a freedom in that too of going okay I did it I think I was doing it wrong for a lot of years but now I have another chance to go do it right but I I think they need to be aware that it's going to feel real painful and real scary and they're not going to want to look at it for a long time because of what it speaks to them about their own person yeah Enneagram twos they're the helpers and they value belonging and connection so how in the world could an Enneagram two go on this journey alone? I don't know because they would be risking every connection, right? They would be risking every place of belonging, especially if their belonging is part of a group of people who weren't willing to go on that journey with them. I, I just think it would be almost impossible. So for an Enneagram two to kind of do that, they have to be okay with their own identity and who God says they are and find that connection so strongly in Jesus that they would be willing to kind of throw everything else away and just hope yeah. that a buddy goes with them. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. They, they, they might need to find themselves a deconstruction community or something. Yeah. Um, Enneagram threes are the achievers. And so I think, I don't know how I would say this. I think they want to be the best at things. They want to be on top. They want to know that they have value and worth. So if, if they are part of a community that's like, hey, we're all going to go deconstruct, they'll be like, I'm going to be the best deconstructor, right? <laughs> um, but, but, you know, if, if they find themselves where they're kind of already finding their value and what they are accomplishing and there's, and, and deconstructing would risk that, I think that's where the fear would come in. Yeah. If this breaks how they see your value, are you willing to take that journey? Um, for me, the four, like I said, I think that the, it's a little bit easy to, to be okay with not having answers with uncertainty, but it's also very scary to think that you could be really misunderstood because we just want to be authentically who we are and we want people to see who we are. And if they are making assumptions about us that aren't true, that's incredibly threatening. Fives, I think fives are like, they're the investigators, they're the analysts. So they're like, I am not emotionally attached to the outcome. Show me the data. Let me do my own research. I might spend 10 years on this journey and I will emerge with the best possible answer based on the data I have found. 
So they might be the actual best ones to really go and deconstruct in a really educated, philosophical kind of way. Yeah. I'm trying to lean on my five wing for that. Yeah. Um, six, as I think we, you know, we talked about with you, I think there's a fear in that because if you found your security in the community that believes a certain way, or you found your security in these actual beliefs, you get very attached to them. So what happens when you threaten that a little bit, you have to learn how to trust yourself. I think it kind of is the same thing as twos. If you can be alone with yourself for, for six, trust your own decision-making that, that's how you have to get started. You know, what if you come to the wrong conclusion and you can't verify it with anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a long between the all between the, oh, I'm not sure what I'm doing. Oh, I got some questions. I got some doubts before the actual tipping point. There was, there was, there was definitely time in between, you know? Yeah. There has to be a lot of personal growth. You have to be really willing to look at your own stuff in order to change any kind of external belief, you really have to know who you are and be doing the internal work first. I just really believe that. Yeah. With any number. Um, sevens are the enthusiasts and they kind of want to have fun. So I don't know that there is concerned maybe overall as to being right or wrong on maybe a certain belief or issue. And they may not be willing to look at something that's going to cause them pain or feeling trapped into a certain way of being so they might be a little bit like better with being a little bit more fluid in their beliefs because they don't want to be trapped or pinned down in any way anyway eights they don't trust a whole lot of people but they really trust their own gut instinct so if they're going to walk this journey they're they're going to figure out what they believe and they're going to figure it out fast and probably stick to it and you can either come along with them or not (laughs) Nope. That's my husband. (laughs) (laughs) He's not going to really question it. He's not really going to care what you think about his journey undertaking it. (laughs) Yeah. And then nines, nines don't want to engage just in life. So doing this work as a nine, especially if it's going to cause conflict and energy and internal conflict where they're wrestling with decisions and things like that. I just think it's going to take more energy than they really have time for unless they've done some of that internal work themselves already. That's my quickest rundown on what may or may not keep people from embarking on this. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to use my Enneagram six to create a safe space for some of those <laughs> twos and nines. Yeah. And, you know, I, I get so fired up. I, you know, I have that conflict style as a four where I want to go, I know that I'm not even that I'm right here, but I know that I've done my due diligence to come to this belief system. And you're not going to challenge me on it because I know I've done my work, but I also don't want the conflict and relational breach that causes because I'm so afraid of feeling misunderstood and not being seen for who I am in the moment. So it's this really weird tension of, I kind of want to fight with you. And I kind of just don't ever want to talk about it ever. So where, so where are you now on this journey? Do you you feel like you started reconstructing? Are you still in that process of, uh, you know, I, I think I'm in the process where I have literally burnt everything down. And Jesus remains. And I'm not going to lie. At the beginning of that, I was a little scared to do that. I was like, is he still going to be there? Is he still going to be there? I mean, everything else seems to be crumbling. Is he still going to be there? And I will say that without a doubt in my heart, Jesus has stayed. He is the statue. He has been firm and steady through this whole process and has not walked away. In fact, I've seen, I've seen him more closely. I've 
I've been more attached to the person and the character of who he is in this journey than I ever was when it was just external beliefs that other people were instilling in me. So that's been a really big blessing. When I, when you say reconstructed, I would say I'm holding everything loosely. Mm. I think that I now am going, um, patriarchy's wrong. I don't know what right looks like. I'm not sure I love capitalism. I know white supremacy should go away, you know, so, but, but I don't know that I know the best ways to do a lot of this stuff. I don't know that I hold the answers to, to how to dismantle oppressive systems. I do know that love, compassion, and mercy should lead us in every decision that we make. And that's kind of the only thing I know right now. I know that I'm not going to condemn people for whatever, whatever they profess to believe and whatever they are doing. Um, I'm not going to condemn them because I don't think condemnation ever leads us to grace. I don't think condemnation ever leads us to wholeness. And I think that love and unending grace are the only things that can put us back together and make us the integrated people. I will say that this journey has brought a really surprising theological conclusion for me. <laughs> Bear with me for just a second. Okay. Okay. So in the garden, in the fall of, you know, fall of man, they ate the apple, they were deceived blah, blah, blah. Now there's patriarchy. Now there's a curse, right? I am now looking at it in a little bit of a different lens and going, what if it wasn't like they disobeyed? What if it was like they shortcutted to the thing they were always going to get in the first place? Because it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil that they ate from. God was not going to keep the knowledge of good and evil from them, but he was growing them into the people to be able to handle what that knowledge looked like and then to steward it in the earth. And they went and said, well, let's do it for ourselves. And they went and took the shortcut. And when they did that, all of a sudden they were like, I'm going to call this good. I'm going to call this evil. And it became this really binary system of seeing good and evil as opposed to, I think, you know, I'm not God, but whatever, however he was going to bring that into the earth was not going to be so binary. Mm. I think it was going to be a lot more both ands of a lot of things. Yeah. And, and I think we took a shortcut in the garden and I think we're still trying to shortcut and box people and label people and determine you're Christian. So you have to be a Republican. You are gay. So you are obviously not a Christian. You are such and such and such. Right. And we determine what boxes people belong in by what choices they seem to make outwardly. And I don't think Jesus, I think he came and just tore down every binary he possibly could he elevated women he sat with sinners he tore the veil which was a very literal you mm -hmm. know uh tearing of the binary of these two different worlds he pulled those apart so they would all blend together i just think it's so much more of both and instead of the right wrong black white binaries that we try to instill and i think we do it out of fear mm -hmm. so i know why we do it but i think that's what happened in the garden that's my own personal Genesis interpretation. Yeah. And I like how you make the comment about the shortcut, because I think that, especially in deconstruction, like even I, like I've said it myself, I've been like, I just want to get this over with because it's really painful. And there's a lot of, like even today, I was just like, I mean, I'm not feeling good because my asthma is flared up. And I'm just like, man, this is just taking so long to figure out where I'm going, what's next. But I think that that's where we have 
especially in the church, we've gotten ourselves into trouble. Um, mm -hmm. The obviously the binary aspect where man, we're just there is no middle of the road. It's either this or that. I don't know that that works a whole lot in, in very many in many, very many areas of practical living. Um, and then, but then also the shortcut, like everybody wants the silver bullet. And when it comes to these kind of things, you, there is no silver bullet, you know, there's no silver bullet in our marriages, um, in having, you know, good, healthy relationships with our kids. And there's no shortcut in our relationship with God. And yeah, I mean, you know, Jesus broke the Sabbath repeatedly. Like he literally looked at the Pharisees and broke one of the 10 commandments over and over and over to them because he was doing it in the name of loving and caring for the least of these. Yeah. So if anything, Jesus is saying, stop getting so caught up in the binary of the this or that and go, how can I extend love here? I just, I really believe that love and mercy has to trump, no pun intended again, every <laughs> rule and every sin we put into place. And the, the word sin, don't even get me started on that either, because we've already tried to binary that down into behaviors. Mm -hmm. And if anyone's ever listened to my podcast, they know that we call sin what happens when we are disintegrated within our souls. Yeah, that's I love I like that definition. West John Wesley's definition too, to miss the mark, which somebody in my denomination recently said, I just our love is important, but not at the expense of sin. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Lord help us. It's gonna if be the start. We have point. elevated sin and the and the importance of sin over love. <laughs> Um, yeah. it, like it's idolatry. God is, you know, first John chapter four, right? God is love. Um, and we have, we idolize and worship sin in this weird way. Yeah. I mean, we do the same with sexuality and our bodies when we are so dismissive of those parts of ourselves, then we are, it's almost a Gnostic view of things. And that's dismissing, you know, our created beings that god made you know we do the same with the bible we worship that in such a way and that we elevate that above the person of jesus well jesus is the word of god the bible is not the word of god not the capital w you know mm -hmm. <laughs> the bible is important don't get me wrong but jesus is the word of god yeah i told i told my congregation on sunday i'm like jesus said i am the way the truth and the life truth is a person it's not an abstract concept yeah um, and so we need to look to the truth who is, you know, the person of Jesus. Um, you made a comment about, you know, burning it all down and stuff. And I, I'm not, you know, you're way ahead of me on any of this. Um, it's definitely the last six months have definitely sped the process up because of some of the stuff I've gone through. And I'm like, I don't need this. I don't need this, you know, and I'm kind of burning stuff to the ground. And yeah, same kind of thing. Oh my goodness. Am I going to, is God going to survive this whole thing? I heard someone else, well, actually it was uh, Science Mike. He said this in his book, um, Finding God in the Waves. I said, like, I have the one thing I can't deconstruct is that initial encounter that, because I had, a, you know, a radical encounter with the love of God when I, you know, whatever, quote unquote, save, however you want to call that. And like, that's the thing I can't, I, I don't know what to do with that experience, you know? I think Jesus is, I mean, the Holy Spirit, God, he's going to keep proving himself. They, I don't even know how to refer to the that, that being anymore, but I, so I just say Jesus, it's easier, but Jesus is going to just keep proving over and over and over that he remains. I, I'm just not worried about that part of it. 
I'm yeah. not worried about people going through deconstruction because I from, well, partly because I think I will change my mind a little bit on even what happens if you're saved or not saved. Um, but also because I just believe that Jesus is here to set us free and freedom doesn't have fear in, involved. Freedom mm -hmm. isn't fear. And I think the reason we want to label everything and call it this or that and be so afraid of sin and our bodies and sexuality and the other and you know everything else it's because of fear it's all fear-based and that's not of god so i think i would just challenge i mean if people aren't on this journey they might not be listening to this episode anyway but just on the off chance somebody i'm friends with wants to hear what i'm saying about it i would just challenge people to start doing their own inner work first because when you can find that freedom and that integration in who you are and who Jesus created you to be within yourself, the fear of the external, it fades. Mm. And you don't have to be so scared about what if I was wrong? What if they're wrong? What if I'm wrong now? The fear just goes away. Yeah, that inner work is so important. Man, this is free good. People. I just, I'm really passionate about this. You know, we we say a lot in our ministry, free people, free people. Mm -hmm. And I think we can do a lot of work in the world that's good without Jesus. I think we can do a lot of work in the world that's good without being whole. I think we can do a lot of work in the world that's good without being free. But I will also say that our brokenness breaks others and our wounds wound others. So if we're not diligent to do that internal work, it's not going to be as, as impactful out in the world as it could be. So it's got to start with yourself. Yeah. Great people, free people. Any last words of thought to people, words or thoughts or encouragement, whatever, people who are like just starting this journey and like, I don't even know where to start. I don't know where to start either, but you know, for me, it really helped to have a safe person kind of walking it with me. And I know not everyone has access to that, but those people exist somewhere. So even if you have to find it online, find someone safe to kind of process this through that won't come with judgment or, or fear based, you know, stigma attached to it, anything like that. Because I think having that safe person is really, or find resources that help you feel listened to and heard. Maybe that's a podcast like I did. Maybe it's, you know, the podcast series you've been doing or the one I do, I think would be helpful or the Holy Post podcast. Find people who, you know, you're not alone, even if they're not in their, in your daily life. Like I got the privilege of having, you know, find people who are willing to hear you, even if it's on a podcast. 